This is an MPT Magazine podcast. For more information, find us online at www.mptmagazine.com. I'm really glad actually to see so many people here for this event. This is the first time that we've talked really publicly about this new MPT anthology. So it's really fantastic to have the opportunity to gather our thoughts about what we've been working on. Before I go any further, I'll just um, I'll just introduce I'll just introduce us all. Um, Helen Constantine is the co-editor of MPT from 1993 to 2012, wasn't it? No, 2012 to 2013. Yeah, completely out of it. Yeah. And um, just let's say the first years of the 21st century, and I think we'd be fairly on target there. Um, and uh, David and uh, David Constantine, um, who co-edited Modern Poetry and Translation with Helen um, for that period, nearly 10 years. And um, David and uh, Helen combined translating, translating poetry and prose with editing Modern Poetry and Translation, which is kind of how it works, really. And um, I'm Sasha Dugdale. I'm the current editor, and I'm also a translator of poetry and plays. And I... I um, took on the magazine in 2012, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, we worked together for six months um, producing an issue, and then I, I carried on. And so it's, it's, it's worth saying about the sort of the, the, the matter of editorship that MPT's had hardly any editors at all. It was set up in 1965, as you probably know, by Ted Hughes and Daniel Weisbord. And um, Ted Hughes. Um, I think it was, was with the magazine for about five years and then sort of more remotely, um, I don't know how you'd say, really benevolent towards it rather than actually involved. Daniel Weisbord carried on editing the magazine from 1965 until 2003. Effectively, so, well, it was two and then we, we negotiated. Yeah. <coughs> so, so, so sort of a, a massive amount of time. Mm. So we're incredibly grateful really to, for him, to him for carrying it on for all those years. Um, and then Dave and Helen, and, and then me. So really, a sort of three sets of editors for a magazine that's lasted 50 years, which I think says something about how extraordinarily congenial the work of editing MPT is, um, working with translations of poetry and working with translators of poetry um, is a really wonderful thing to do. It is genuinely quite a wonderful thing to do. And um, I wanted to say that because it sort of actually relates quite closely to the work we've been doing in this anthology. We've been working together um, for nearly a year now to put together an anthology of work that's been produced over the 50 years of modern poetry and translation. And uh, just the work on the anthology has had that, has been in the same way congenial, reading back over uh, work that was published 50 years ago, looking at the context in which it was published, the times in which the work was published, and, um, and doing some research around that. Um, we spent quite a lot of time in King's College, where the Modern Poetry and Translation Archive is kept, uh, looking at letters and correspondences between Ted Hughes and Daniel Weisbord, and Daniel Weisbord and some of the contributors to Modern Poetry and Translation. Um, and the, the, the final book is going to be a, a sort of doorstop book, really, the sort of book that you... Um, keep to throw at an intruder <laughs> with um, 400, over 400 pages and um, nearly as many poems um, and also some prose, some editorials, some letters from the correspondents, um, some reviews, um, some pieces of writing that just came into MPT's um, very, very varied sometimes editorial position and um, we hope it's going to be quite a sort of living um, a live and living anthology. Um, I don't want to talk too much now. What we're going to do is we're each going to describe something in the anthology that we feel particularly we feel particularly warm about or particularly close have um, particular relationship with, and um, and then at the end maybe a discussion, and then hopefully you'll have some questions and we can open up discussion more generally to you as well. So I'm going to um, hand over to Helen Constantine, who's going to. Um, yes, hello. Um, <clears throat> well, one of the things that we, we, we've done over the years with Modern Poetry and Translation is introduce new poets to English literature, basically, through their translations. And um, one of the really remarkable translators that 
we had quite early on, actually in 2004, 2005, was Alan Prowell, who introduced us to Rocco Scotellaro, who was um, an obviously Italian poet. Um, he was born in 1923 and he died in 1953 at the age of 30, very early. Um, he had an undiagnosed heart condition then. And the region he grew up in was Basilicata in southern Italy. It was formerly Lucania and it was a very poor region. Uh, people really struggled to survive and I think some of you may have seen the film Christ Stopped at Eboli. Um, well, if you have, you know exactly what that region was like. And Carlo Levi, who wrote the, uh, the book of the same name, um, describes it really well in his in his um, in his book. I was just going to remind you of it. Really, um, he he says the peasants' houses were all alike, consisting of only one room that served as a kitchen, bedroom, and usually as quarters for the barnyard animals as well, unless there happened to be an outhouse, which they described with a dialect word of Greek derivation, patiko. On one side of the room was the stove, sticks brought in every day from the fields served as fuel, and the walls and ceiling were blackened with smoke. The only light was that from the door. The room was almost entirely filled by an enormous bed, much larger than an ordinary double bed. In it slept the whole family, father, mother and children. The smallest children, before they were weaned, that is, until they were three or four years old, were kept in little reed cradles or baskets hung from the ceiling just above the bed. So under the bed slept the animals, and so the room was divided into three layers. It's hard to imagine now, really, um, uh, except that sometimes we're reminded of that with the, with the um, refugees crisis. But um, this was normal life in um, Basilicata in, in those days. And Carlo Levi was um, a doctor at, at the time. And also, he was a, a writer and a painter, and a remarkable man. Um, so uh, we should also say that malaria was rife, so he was always treating people with malaria. Um, Rocco Scotellaro joined the Socialist Party, um, and he was mayor of Tricarico at the age of 23, and he worked tirelessly for land reform, and he really threw in his lot with the peasants. Um, poetry was for him often allied to direct political action, um, but he had a rough time really. He was manipulated by people who really didn't like him, who, who thought he was a bit of an upstart, and um, he was imprisoned completely unjustly for fraud, and uh, I think he was in prison for about 45 days until he was released by um, the influence of Carlo Levi again, who became his friend. Um, when uh, there was a, a, an anniversary of his, of his death, um, they inscribed in the house that he lived in, in Tricarico, Il Poeta della Libertà Cittadina. So he was the poet of uh, rural liberty. He, he, he was sort of one with them, really. Um, Carlo Levi was a, a close friend of him and he was his companion on his journey to Sicily and I would like to read um, a short passage that Carlo Levi wrote about him right at the end of um, this book which is called Words of Stones Impressions of, of Sicily um, My memory of Rocco Scotellaro who was my companion on that journey through the countryside and towns of Calabria. In my story, I had not mentioned him, and yet all the same he was there, present on every page, in every word. He had not left my side for an instant in this brief dash through the lands of the reform, and he insisted on taking notes for me with the affectionate modesty of his boyish ways, jotting them down as was, as was his manner, on scraps of paper, cigarette packs, matchboxes. He talked to the peasants with that gift of his for establishing a direct rapport which allowed him to open with ease even the most tightly locked minds and mouths. 
Yeah, uh, I think it, it gives a really good impression of what this what this young poet was like um, with his with his with his red hair and his um, very boyish looks. Really, um, this this picture is um, this picture is uh, one of Carlo Levi's pictures of him. Uh, and when we went to Matera, we saw uh, an amazing frieze. I, I don't know if any of you have seen that. An amazing frieze by Carlo Levi of um, Rocco and uh, the villagers, really, um, which was a bit like um, a sort of. Uh, it was a bit like a passion, wasn't it? Well, it's been like, yeah. With yeah. Rocco, uh, very much the Christ, the Christ figure. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's, if you haven't seen it and you ever get the chance to go to Matera and in Basilicata, do go and, go and see it. Um, after publishing these translations in MPT, in this edition, um, in this uh, big green issue, um, we, we thought it would be a good idea to produce pamphlets, and we started to produce pamphlets. I don't think you do that anymore, do you? Um, because uh, Sasha produces three issues of MPT instead of the two that we, we used to produce uh, every year. Um, so um, this is a little pamphlet uh, of Alan Prowell's translations of, of Scott and Arrow. So that's, that's that one. Um, in 2013, this volume appeared, um, which is a collaborative translation between our chairman, who is Caroline Maldonado um, and Alan Prowl uh, and, and Alan Prowl as well, um, and as I say, Levy's painting is, is the one on the on the cover. Um, Rocco became something of a legend in Tricarico, and the people there are still incredibly proud of him. And uh, we were very privileged to be uh, invited. Um, after we published some of his poems in translation, we were invited um, to go there and, and, and talk in the in the Cendro, right in the middle of this little square in Tricarico. And um, it was a, funnily enough, it was a rainy night, and there were people spilling out into the courtyard, and they invited um, Rye tele Television to come along as, and interview us as well. So they were just so. Thrilled. I mean, they, they they were fully kind of identified with this with this um, this man. We were taken to um, to the graveyard to see Rocco's grave, and one of the things you noticed when you went into the cemetery was that all the other graves round about had the name Rocco, <coughs> so people were named after him. I'm quite sure that it was that way around. Um, it was amazing to see so many Roccos in the in the graveyard. Um, what else? Um, yes, well, we, we, that was in 2012. We went and we talked about him and read some of the, the, the poems, didn't we? And it was very moving, actually. Um, but then Caroline Maldonado, the chairman, went there again this year to take part in a film about him. And um, I'd like to read you what she wrote, which we were going to publish in the, in the anthology. Um, she went back and, and um, met some of his friends and relatives and she wrote this piece that, that's going to be published it's called Recalling Rocco you have such a beautiful face the Tuscan filmmaker said to the old man continuing to film him after the interview was concluded he was right Giuseppe in his 90s has a fine face expressive, strong-boned. It reveals his tough peasant life. In the interview, he talked about his friendship with the great humanist poet Rocco Scotellaro, who wrote about the impoverished land and people of southern Italy in the 1940s, and who, at the age of 23, became the first socialist mayor of his birthplace, Tricarico in Basilicata, and who was dead by 30. This September was my second visit to Tricarico. In 2013, I accompanied um, David and Helen for a reading at the Centro di Documentazione di Rocco Scotellaro e la Basilicata del Secondo Dopoguerra, 
NPT had published some Scotinaro poems in the Big Green Issue and in a pamphlet, which I, I mentioned just now. Alan and I, that's Alan Prowell, collaborated for several years on a longer collection called Your Call Keeps Us Awake, and that's, that's this, this volume here. And that's a quotation from one of uh, Rocco's poems. Um, it's published by Smokestack Books um, in 2013. That night, the great convent hall was packed and the audience spilled out into the courtyard. Later, local people crowded round us, each with a personal, affectionate story about the poet, as if he'd died only the week before, not 60 years ago. Scottolaro's fiancée, who has kept all his letters and has never married, has only now agreed to talk publicly about him for this documentary, which um, Caroline had gone back to take part in. As I'd also participated in the film, I was invited to attend the interview with Giuseppe. He sat on the front steps of his small terraced house in the old Arab quarter of Rabata. We, we, we walked along there, actually, which was um, towards the, the, the castle, wasn't it? Inside, the room contained a round wooden table covered by a white tablecloth with four chairs, a comfortable sofa, and a large flat-screen TV on the wall. How had his life changed since the old days? You'd never throw away bread then. Children were dying of hunger. There was no running water. He pointed down at the narrow cobbled street. And this was a dirt track, filthy with shit from the animals, brought down to the fields at 3.30 every morning. Both he and his wife, Antonietta, had worked the fields. It was a hard life. She lost two babies and the couple are childless. Giuseppe had known Rocco since he was eight. He pulled a cracked black and white photo of his friend from his wallet. It had always been with him, even when he went to work for six years in Germany. Rocco was one of us, he said. We were uneducated, but he never looked down on us. He'd play Mora with us, and he loved to dance. Mora is a, a game of chance, and they're telling him chance. And of course, he was always by our side for the land occupations. At one point, he went silent, trembling with emotion, remembering the betrayal when Rocco's political opponents charged him falsely with corruption and he was temporarily imprisoned. Did Rocco know who was responsible? He invented a song, Giuseppe said, which he'd sing in public meetings in the town square. It was in dialect, it was oblique, but it showed up each of his enemies. He could do that with words. After all, he was a poet. Yeah, so um, we thought we would like to put that in the, um, in the anthology as well. Um, for anyone who doesn't know Rocco's poetry, it's very much rooted in the here and now of rural Basilicata. It, some of it is, is also very political, but um, I think some of the, the loveliest poems that he wrote are... Um, uh, are, are those that um, are really re related to where he, he came, came from and um, uh, the people around him. And this, I was, I'd like to read a couple of poems to finish with. Um, this one called, is called The Violets Are Children With Bare Feet. The leaves are fresh on the almond trees. Spring water rains from stone walls. Trotting lightly, the donkeys choose the friendlier of the river ba river's banks. The girls with the darkest eyes clamber on the squeaking cart, aloof. March is a baby, laughing already in its swaddling clothes. And you can forget the winter, who, bent by bundles of wood, have told your beads, mile after freezing mile, to roast your face by the fire. Now ticks come back to the horses, in the stables, flies stir the air, and children with bare feet charge upon clumps of violet. And a short one to finish with, <coughs> called... called The Full Moon. Our beds fill with the full moon. Mules pass by, on shoes of soft iron. 
a dog gnaws its bone. Under the stairs, you can hear the donkey, its shudders and scratching. Under the other stairs, my mother has slept for 60 years. Well, that's a good instance, really. That's what it's been all about, I think. That's one of the things we're proudest of, is that connection with a real place and with real people. Um, when we knew we were going to be stopping or, and handing it on to, we didn't know it was, would be Sasha. We're very glad that it was, but we didn't know that. In October 2011, um, we put together a brief essay, why we edit MPT, what we want it to do. And it was in part a summing up of why we'd been doing it all that time and the kind of philosophy that had come out of actually doing it and of what we wanted it to carry on doing and still do want it to do and that's exactly what Sasha has done. The idea would be, I suppose, was to give it to any applicant so that they'd know what they were letting themselves in for, not the work, but actually into the, in a way, the harder thing, the sort of spirit of the whole undertaking. Um, and in the anthology that's coming out, we've included a, an extract from that short essay, which I'll read now. And then we, we've added uh, an, another paragraph to say, as it were, where we are now, I mean now in 2015, as we hand on to uh, 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 preface then by Sasha, who's now been in the job for three years. Three years. Yeah. <laughs> so this is from October 2011. Our first premise is that poetry matters because it tells the truth in notably mendacious times and because that truth, through the forms and rhythms of poetry, enlivens people's lives. Our second premise is that translation matters because it brings valuable things from abroad into our native language. English is a major world language and precisely for that reason its native speakers need to be continually confronted with what is foreign to them, or they risk becoming complacent and insular. We believe that MPT, keeping faith with those principles, can encourage humane dealings between very different nationalities, languages, ideologies and ways of life. Translation and poetry together make for variety. They demonstrate that your own view is not the only one. Like our immediate predecessor, Danny Weisport, only more so, we understand the modern in the magazine's title to mean any new and lively version of any poetry of any age. So translation crosses frontiers of both space and time. The past is a foreign country just as much as anywhere else beyond our frontiers now. We need the imports from both foreign time and space. When Ted Hughes and Danny Weisport began MPT in 1965, their aim was twofold, to get poetry out from behind the Iron Curtain into currency in the West in English, but also to enliven English language poetry by those imports from abroad. When we took over the magazine fully in 2004, we continued in the second of those ambitions to confront home with abroad, but changed the first to accord with the facts and politics of the world now. And we said then, the whole hallmark of our time is exile and diaspora, the enforced movement of people, the search for asylum, the loss of native speech, the necessary acquiring of new speech abroad. And we've added now a note, as it were, to 2015. As you see, this is centres of cataclysm, but nobody supposes that cataclysm is, as it were, been and done with. It's life... Um, human life seems to be a kind of series of uh, cataclysms and we are most certainly in another one. So a note from now. That hallmark of our times, that is to say diaspora wanderings, appears now day by day more like a mark of Cain or a terrible disfigurement on the front page of every newspaper and on every television screen. A man can't hold his wife and their two little boys they slip from his grasp and wash up drowned on a shore that does not want them. Thousands upon thousands, day after terrible day. 
and in the Lebanon, two million backed up in wretched conditions, liable soon to be evicted into the next stage of exile in another place where they will not be welcome. We thought and think the magazine a benign version of the crossing of frontiers, of worldwide generous, mutually enlivening exchange. And that utopian gesture is not cancelled out, but is made more necessary by the real present context of our celebratory anthology, namely the biggest expulsion of peoples since the Second World War. MPT has always sought and will always seek a real diversity of voices, women and men equally, different centuries, countries, languages, cultures, ideas. The very essence of the founding principle was your view is not the only one. Set that against the maniacal, life-hating, life-destroying monotheism presently advancing bloodily across the Middle East. <coughs> In this context of hateful fundamentalism and the expulsion from home into a largely unfriendly abroad, we are making an anthology of 50 years of good writing first published in MPT. This volume and every new issue of the magazine are a profession of faith in the virtue of poetry and translation through the act, through the act and the metaphor of the translation of poetry, MPT will continue to show what pluralism and free exchange are like. It will be those things in practice, we might say. And so it will do what poetry always does. It will prove that human beings can still imagine a world more in accordance with them at their best. People, poetry can't bring that better condition about, but by its most characteristic workings, by its liveliness, its freedom, its natural sympathy for plurality of being, poetry and the act of translating it can and must keep on insisting that we are capable of living together better than we do now. Bear witness to the worst and to the best. Keep faith in the possibility of a state much closer to the best than the state we live in now. What we'd like to do, I think, we'll finish as early as we can, is actually say something a little bit more, discussion a little bit more, about the notion that an activity takes a very large measure of its sense by the context in which it operates. So poetry in a particular context, translation, the particular context in which we now exist, takes a large amount of its philosophy and effect from that context. I'll read just um, two or three poems, which are not just from, um, well, they're from all over the place, actually. The anthology is organised very roughly, not chronologically at all, but very roughly in sort of centres, but not centres necessarily of cataclysm. The whole latter part of it finishes with what you might call the antidote to cataclysm, that is to, to say poetry at its most lyrical, its most typically lyrical best. But here's one from the earlier part um, by Primo Levi, whom you may know better as a writer of extraordinary prose and as somebody who... Um, as a partisan, was captured pretty quickly and pretty w quickly went into, but survived, in a certain sense survived, survived as writer, survived Auschwitz. And here's a poem which is, which is clearly about the worst in our times, and it does it by, in the way of figurative instances, which you'll recognise, I think. The poem is actually called The Girl at Pompeii, and it begins with an extraordinary premise, which we could discuss forever, really. Since the anguish of each is the anguish of all, let us relive your own once more, skinny girl, who clung convulsively to your mother as if you wanted to vanish back inside her that midday when the heavens turned black. In vain, since the air had turned to poison, seeking you out, slipped through the barred-up windows of your house calm behind the solid walls, which once echoed your singing and timid laughter. Centuries went by, the ash became stone, imprisoning forever those graceful young limbs. And so you are with us still, a twisted cast, agony without end, dreadful testimony to how the gods rate our prayed, proud seed. But of your distant sister, nothing remains. 
the girl from Holland, closed within four walls, yet who wrote her story without tomorrows. Mute her dust is scattered upon the wind, her brief life shot in a crumpled notebook, victim sacrificed upon fear's altar. Nothing remains of the Hiroshima schoolgirl but a shadow fixed to the wall by the glare of a thousand suns. Potentates of the earth, sad secret custodians of the definitive thunder, procurers of new poisons, we have had our fill of afflictions rained down from heaven before pressing the button, stop and consider. Here's a poem by, I think, a very great poet, a man called Harry Martinson. Um, orphaned at the age of six, his father died and his mother left immediately for the USA. He was brought up then in a series of orphanages. At the age of 16, 17, he went to sea and was a sailor uh, for seven years. And thereafter, coming back to his native Sweden, became, made himself into one of the best-known writers of his generation and won the Nobel Prize in 1974. And here's, if you like, a poem which is uh, overtly political, but it's done in a way that Brecht would approve of. It's extraordinarily, completely concrete. The poem is called Cable Ship. We fished up the Atlantic cable between Barbados and Tortuga, held up our lanterns and patched over the gash on its back, 15 degrees north and 61 west. When we put our ears to the Nord part, we heard the murmuring of the cable. One of us said, it's the millionaires in Montreal and St John's discussing the price of Cuban sugar and the lowering of our wages. We stood there long, thinking, in a lantern circle, we patient cable fishers, then lowered the mended cable back to its place in the sea. And I'll, I'll read as a sort of antidote to what men are, as it were, normally like. A lovely poem by a friend of Sasha's and of ours, I think, Marina Boroditskaya. It's a lovely title in itself. So much gentleman, sorry, <laughs> nice poem. so much gentleness from unknown men. This is another way of saying so many gentlemen. So much gentleness from unknown men for no particular reason. Once in Paris, a waiter turned to me, Cherie, don't forget your cigarettes. And in a London market, when I wanted to buy a Beatles record, the stallholder sighed, what can I do, love, if the price goes up again? In New York airport, an old black man took me to the right gate, saying, don't panic, baby, just follow me. And I followed in his footsteps. So much kindness from strange men. Why the hell should I need more? Lie peaceful in your oyster pearl. Stay calm, moon, in the heavens. And very brief one to finish, a, a really nice little poem from uh, Gabriele Cantu Westendart, translated from the Mexican Spanish by Lawrence Schimmel. The Language of Ghosts. Mama, today I discovered the language of ghosts. What are you talking about, Claudio? Yes, Mama, seriously, I discovered the language of ghosts. To say hello, they say, who, who? To say yes, they say, who? And how do they say goodbye? I don't know. They haven't left yet. <laughs> Sorry, I, I should have said that Marina's poem was translated by Ruth, Ruth Bainwright. And, and um, the Harry Martin Harry Martin was uh, Robin, Robin, Fult Robin, Robin Fulton. Robin Fulton. Yeah. Yeah. Great translator from Swedish. Yeah, I mean, what, what, what you kind of, what strikes you is that they sound like original poems, don't they? Yeah, there's the kind of rule of thumb, does this give pleasure as English verse? And I think we've found, as we're going through these hundreds of poems, actually, the greater proportion of them do, which is a great um, tribute to the, to the extraordinary skill and uh, sort of finesse and finesse of feeling, really, of the translated. You're doing all right? We're doing all right time, I just wanted to talk a little bit about the anthology and um, also read a poem at the end. But um, what, uh, 
David touched briefly on the principle of the anthology, um, and it, it is worth saying a little bit about that because it is, it, it's been quite an odd and eccentric principle. We spent quite a lot of time thinking about how you could organise an anthology, whether you should do it by an alphabetical order or whether you should do it um, in chronological order or the order in which these things were published. And in the end, we went for something that we felt worked for us, which was a sort of curated order um, around... Uh, around the idea of centres and circles, concentric circles moving outwards. And at the heart of them, and the first circle in the book, is a section called, it's not called this, but I think for us it was called cataclysm. So it is about the various human cataclysms. And um, the title of the anthology, Centres of Cataclysm, comes from the very first uh, editorial that Ted Hughes and Daniel Weisbrot wrote for modern poetry and translation. I have the original copy here. Um, this is it. It's my, this is my, <coughs> my travelling museum. And <laughs> here it is. It's, it's done like a, a broadsheet, on very, very thin paper. And we found when we were researching in King's College, we found a letter where Ted Hughes wrote that he wanted it to be on airmail paper so it was easier to send out. And the designer, Richard Hollis, said that Ted Hughes and he had had in mind something that would happen in Nicaragua to get poems and writings out. And um, in the first editorial, um, which is really a really wonderful text, which we will definitely put at the beginning of the um, of the anthology, they say that um, I'll just find it here. So there has been little attempt to impose any unity on this first issue, but the unity, such as it is, has imposed itself on us. While we had material coming from many other areas of the world, it was that which came from Eastern Europe, which was somehow the most insistent. It is this region which has been at the centre of cataclysm. One of the most remarkable features of the poetry printed in this first issue is its sense of purpose, its confidence in the social as well as the private value of poetry, its confidence that it is being heard. This poetry is more universal than ours. It deals in issues universally comprehensible. It does not fight shy of philosophy and, and so on. And the first issue is, is given almost entirely to Eastern European poetry. Wozinsensky, Vasco Popper, Ivan Lalic, um, and uh, kind of in some ways the odd man out, Yehuda Amikai from, from Israel on the first page, but also writing about cataclysm. And what was particularly interesting about the, the editorials to the early issues, I've got two and, and three here, as you can see, the magazine changes every five minutes, but in a, in a rather nice way, as if it doesn't altogether matter, as long as it's the design fits the purpose. That's two, there's three. Um, and then it moves to a sort of funny book. Four, <laughs> five. I, I didn't bring the other um, 150, I'm afraid. But you can see it, it's always changed. It's always... It's been under, undergoing constant process of metamorphosis, which is really nice for us as editors, because I think we've all felt that we could do what we wanted with the magazine as, as long as it fitted the spirit of it. And the spirit, as I think, I think as Ted Hughes said, is that it was a sort of airport for incoming work, so it could land, um, land in, in an English language airport, I suppose. And, but what was very interesting, and something that we, we sort of wanted to point out in the anthology, was that the approach to translation changes wildly, and um, Ted Hughes, and I think particularly Ted Hughes, um, although these editorials are written by both Ted and Daniel, um, had a, a very strong view about translation and felt very very much that translation should be as literal as possible, which we, we, um, we talked about this and we wondered whether it wasn't partly because he didn't speak any other languages. So. <laughs> but um, he, he has a, in, in MPT3, so 1967, two years later, he says, in this present unusually fertile period of translations, it is right that there should be plenty of theories in the air. The more opposed, the better, in our opinion. Nevertheless, after our experience as editors of this paper, we feel more strongly than ever that the first ideal is literalness, <coughs> insofar as the original is what we are curious about. The very oddity and struggling dumbness of a word-for-word -word version is what makes our own imagination jump. A man who has something really serious to say in a language of which he knows only a few words manages to say it far more convincingly and effectively than any interpreter. And in translated poetry, it is the first-hand contact, however fumbled or broken, with that man and his seriousness which we want. 
I don't know what you think about that. Total <laughs> <laughs> rubbish. But um, on the other hand, it's sort of really interesting view, and it's also, I mean, it is an opposing view. And I think that is the one really good thing about it. It's totally lively, the discussion about what, what translation is and, and what constitutes a successful translation. And Ted Hughes had a, had a very strong view about that. And interestingly, it's not a view that he was born out in his own translations. I'd like to read you a really tiny bit of a translation that Ted Hughes did, which we will include. Um, one of the other circles in our, in our sort of imaginary rippling pond um, is, is, is translation and the act of, of translating and getting it across. And we've sort of done in the anthology a case study of, of one um, poem. And that poem is Yuhach, Ferenc Yuhach's um, poem called um, The Boy Changed Into a Stag Cries Out at the Gate of Secrets. And this, trans this <coughs> poem was translated uh, a couple of times, once by Kenneth McRobbie, once by David Weevil from the Hungarian, um, two translators who knew Hungarian. And Ted then um, had a go at it too. And um, I'm just going to quote what Danny, Daniel Weisbrook wrote about this. What is intriguing is that Ted Hughes felt able to rewrite the English version without any reference to the source text. <laughs> it's interesting that he, he was able in this situation simply to write his own version based on someone else's, whereas in other circumstances, i.e. when faced by the poet himself or by the source text in a literal translation, he feels compelled to stay as close as possible to the wording and even the syntax of the original. Um, and Ted, he's referring there to Ted Hughes's translations of Polinsky, which were also in MPT, and we've also got some of in the anthology. And um, these translations of Polinsky are, are, are really interesting, as also because as Tara Bergen, um, who wrote wrote a great deal on Hughes and translation notes, you see Ted Ted Hughes's poetry emerging from the translations of Polinsky and his own tactics for writing poetry. And Tara very interestingly compares one of the Polinsky poems in Crow and shows how Ted Hughes' aesthetics develop aesthetic develops through translation. But this is I'm just going to read you a really tiny bit of this boy changed into a stag cries out at the gate of secrets. The mother called after her son from the far distance. The mother called after her son from the far distance. She went out in front of the house calling. And she loosened her hair's thick knot which the dusk wove to a dense, stirring veil, a valuable robe sweeping the earth, wove to a stiff and heavily flaring mantle, a banner for the wind with ten black tassels, a shroud, the fire-slashed, blood-heavy twilight. She twisted her fingers among the fine tendrils of the stars, the moon's suds bleached her features, and she called after her son, shrilly, as she called him long ago, a small child. She went out from the house, talking to the wind, and spoke to the songbirds, her words overtaking the wild geese, going in couples, to the shivering bulrushes, to the potato flower in its pallor, to the clench-balled bull bulls rooted so deeply, to the fragrant, shadowy sumch. She spoke to the fish where they leapt playfully, to the momentary oil rings, mauve and fleeting. You birds and branches, hear me, listen as I cry. Listen, you fishes and you flowers. Listen, I cry to be heard. Listen, you glands of the pumping soils, you vibrant fins, you astral seeding parachutes. Decelerate, you humming motors of the saps. Screw down the whining taps in the depth of the atom, all iron pelvis virgins sheep alive under cotton listen as i cry i am crying out to my son we have this whole section or circle around this poem because in the next issue of mpt this is number 21 this is towards the end of the 90s um pascal petit offers her own version but she changes um she changes the gender so it's the daughter calling to the, to the mother, or the mother calling to the daughter, and then the daughter replying. And um, so it's a, really, it's, a, it's a really brilliant, brilliant case study for how translation can affect what's going, going on in, in, in our language. Pascal wrote an equally beautiful, long narrative poem, and then several issues later, um, in one of David and Helen's um, 
issues, there's a, another poem by Tara Bergen, um, again a response to the stag boy, but her own response. And um, so it's, it's, a, it's a sort of ripple, again a perfect ripple of how one piece of work translated in a very, very particular way, in a very sort of particular and, 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 and slightly um, eccentric way, then becomes the basis for another poem, which becomes the basis for another poem. And, and we like that, we like that whole relationship, and so we put, put that in the MPT. Um, we've still got a couple of minutes, and I just wanted to make one other point about MPT, um, which, which came out of working on the anthology, and that was the, um, the, the sort of idea of context, which, which David talked about, and the fact that you know, context is so much part of, of the work, but particularly M not just MPT, but any poetry. But one of the earliest issues, MPT 5, um, which was published in 1968, um, coincided with roughly with the Soviet invasion of Czechoslovakia. And uh, there's some really fantastic correspondence around this issue, particularly touching the letters from George Steiner to Daniel Weisbord, in which um, George Steiner was a translator um, from Czech, and, and his, many of his translations are in modern poetry and translation. But I was really touched by his letters to, to Daniel Weisbord in which he writes that he's been forced to leave Czechoslovakia, he's in Vienna, the Soviet invasion has happened, and um, he doesn't know what to do. And the history of, um, of, of this is that George Steiner was originally Czech. Um, he left Czechoslovakia in 1938 um, because the, uh, he was a Czech Jew, and the Germans were, <coughs> were, were advancing or taken over Czechoslovakia and then annexed it, and then he... He then went to the UK, he lived in the UK, he went back after the war, and then in 1968 he was forced again to leave Czechoslovakia and um, to move back to move to the UK. And his son now lives in Czechoslovakia. But it just seems to be a sort of complete, I don't know, the idea of cataclysm and poetry in translation seemed to be totally encapsulated in his life and his relationship with poetry translation because he gave his life really to um, publishing Czech writing and Czech poets in English language, their work wouldn't die. They weren't able to publish their own work in Czechoslovakia. The journals that they published in were shut down. There was increasing censorship, and he published their work here, and, and that was his, his, his life's work. He was also editor of Index <coughs> on Censorship, I think, for, for a while. And um, this, this issue came out in, at, that, at, that, at that point in history. And I think that that's something that, that really struck me, that MPT is so much interwoven in, in, into our history, really, our European history and our wide and the world's, world's history. And that's something that's very, very marked in the anthology through the poems. I'm going to stop there because I think it would be really good to ask you and to open it out and ask if you've got any questions and sort of carry on in a more, uh, <coughs> more discussion. We, we, we're okay till half past. We've got till half yeah. past, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, whether you think it should be bilingual, or, I mean, because there's obviously a bit of a decision not to have it bilingual. But yes, it, it, that's a really interesting. Uh, it's, it's a funny question because often translations are published as dual texts, yeah. and um, <coughs> and and we have published occasionally dual texts. At the moment, we don't, and there's very very particular reasons for this. One is that if a work is in copyright, then you pay rights for the original. If it's not in copyright, it's usually available online somewhere. It's also um, to, to you know to fit as much work in as possible because we'd lose half the magazine if we published translations. But the third reason, which is something that I hadn't considered, and our designer um, said, we, um, Katie Moorhood, who designs MPT at the moment, we, we asked her to set a Tamil text, and she said, I, I, I can't set this text. I'm not Tamil. I have no understanding of the culture of Tamil um, writing. And she asked a friend of hers who lived in, um, who actually lived in Sri Lanka, to set the work for us. So it was set by a Tamil. So it looked right on the page. And I know because I'm a, a Russian speaker that it always really amuses me when Russian designers design Latin texts because they have no idea how Latin texts are set out on the page. And all the small conventions that have built up culturally over the years, 
They just don't know them. They have no experience of them. And I, th that also worries me slightly, that if we were to start publishing texts in other languages, first of all, we'd have to get them proofed and checked, which yeah. would be a nightmare. But then we'd actually have texts that actually perhaps potentially wouldn't actually look very good if you were an, a native speaker. And so there's all sorts of, of reasons that, that have come to that yeah. and brought in that. Well, was it always um, monolingual? I mean, was it always just the translation? We, we, we did a few more, didn't we? we but not many. <coughs> for those. Not many. I mean, it, mainly publishers usually say it's the expense yeah. and the volume. Yeah. I mean, the, the amount it's twice, in the twice book. Big, yeah. Yeah. It's twice as big. And, and I remember when I was trying to um, get bilingual, uh, a, a volume of, of the, the stories that, that I edit, when I asked. Um, OUP. Well, I asked around. I asked loads and loads of publishers if they would translate, if they would produce it as a bilingual edition. They all said no, but we will. One or two of them said we would do it as an English version. So I had to make do with that. I mean, I think they do better in France. They do better in Germany. Certainly, I know that you can you can buy these things in Germany and they're, they're bilingual. I, whether they use very um, much more delicate paging or, or what, I don't quite know. The, the actual texture of the pages is very thin, like the ML paper yeah. that you mentioned. I don't so think there's don't a problem know. in, I mean, Blood Axe does facing translations, Arc yeah. does facing yeah. translations, but yeah. those are entire volumes usually of a, yeah. of a particular poet. And um, one of the things is we, we always, and Sasha has also, we had such a colossal number of possibilities of publication all the time. and. On the whole, the face-to-face the, the -face thing is an exercise in itself, and it's it's principally for those who have <coughs> the two languages, and it's inexhaustibly interesting if you want to see what X is made of, exactly. of Y. And we did do workshops. We, we, with, yes, on the, on the like website, didn't we? We've, we've, we've had published had various versions on the website. Mark, Mark yes. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, which Margaret um, did, yes. Interesting. I yeah. suppose, really, what <laughs> Sasha said is... is how we were already, we, we, we were drawn towards it with it seemed like a, you know, there was a real point in putting two together, but in a sense it's, what we didn't want it ever to become is a sort of handbook of translation, you know, or something that only people interested in the theory and practice of translation would, it's very unlikely, I mean, as I said, it's worth repeating, we honestly think of it, and particularly having read through an awful lot of it again, as a colossal anthology of very, very good poetry in in a language which is pleasing, which affects you as English first does. And yeah, I think that's really important yeah. too, that you, it's not, you, I mean, the, the process is interesting, but my, I suppose the result is what really interests me. So I was really pleased to see that the Holop poem, The Fly, that is in the first issue and we're going to use in the anthology, actually was in an anthology of the best British poetry as a translation. Mm. And I know it sort of sounds ridiculous, but it's about the best thing yeah, that can, you know, can happen yeah. to there's always been a sort of penumbra around MPT where lots goes on that has to do with the business of translation. More under, under Danny and then more, much more actually under Helen and, and mine and more still probably under Sasha. And that we think of as, be wrong to call it educational, but that's, that's, um, you know, that's one of the circles around it is the, the whole practice, which is, Sasha's indicated with this, in a you know really rather slightly odd penchant for absolutely literal check <laughs> and so forth, but that's one way of doing it, and there are an awful lot. But you, so anybody interested in the art of translation, with a couple of languages, could go back through these, through these issues and ask herself himself how how it was done because the the, the texts are, are there. So, but yeah, it's another. <laughs> Not related to poetry, but definitely related to cataclysms. Um, I'm the volunteer manager for Translators Without Borders, and we are helping several NGOs at the moment with the European refugee crisis, and we're recruiting translators of Arabic, Farsi, Dari, Greek and Turkish, and if you want to know how to help, please come and talk to me or look at our website. Thank you. Thank you very much. Can I speak on that point, actually, that the next um, MPT, the spring MPT, is going to have a sort of section devoted to refugee poetry in it. Oh. And I'm going to start writing rounds and doing e-letters to people, but I really want contributions that are related to refugees, not not necessarily only contemporary ones, because poetry and refugee status have been linked for, for
Well, there's a whole sort of one of the bits of cataclysm. There's a whole section on exile, isn't there? In this, I mean, you recognise poems of exile. Too, yeah. We are getting a lot of emails from people who are stuck in various countries, and these are people who are helping us translate. But they're also passing on their personal stories. So, yeah, if you like, we could put out a call. You know, if you know of any poetry. Uh, yeah. Yes, that, that would be very useful yeah. and yeah. interesting. Yeah. We've had yeah. a lot. I mean, there's an Oxford asylum seekers. Not an issue, but. A, there was a mentoring scheme in Oxford, and the results of that were in the magazine. I, I should think, honor, not honestly speaking, every single issue must have something in it by somebody who is actually an exile, a refugee, or who is, you know, it touches on it. It just does. Going right back, I mean, the classical Chinese. I mean, most of it's almost a sort of uh, requirement of the job as a classical Chinese poet that you be in exile. I mean, it's you know, it's in exile in one of the provinces as a minor functionary, but. Um, I found the essay quite interesting that that did, yeah. and um, I quite like the definition of modern and, in, and, did. Yeah. and I guess I was wondering whether you have any examples maybe of the sort of the older texts that you've seen or read that have been done in sort of a modern way, because you can obviously have a lot century stuff, but do you, do you also include the sort of pre-20th century? Oh yeah, we've had Gilgamesh, we had bits of Gilgamesh, we've had a lot of, one of one of the things we're especially proud of actually, was had, we had Seamus Heaney's um, translation of a part of the Iliad, of, of the, so, Aeneid. the Aeneid, and yeah. next to that, now Seamus was famous, you know, very famous then, and next to that we had a, a, a young man who'd never been published before in his life, and he gave us some Sappho. Um, so it's always gone right back, as with Gilgamesh, is about the earliest your life. We had quite a lot of Anglo-Saxon, um, you know, the praise songs and things like that. We've had. Now it doesn't mean necessarily that people have, although some have. Uh, Shazia would be an instance actually of taking a very old text and making a very modern thing out of it. But that was never a requirement. We've, we've uh, you know, Heaney's Heaney's Aeneid was not, as it were. A, a notably um, modernising effort to tell you what a Sybil was in a different sort of language, on the contrary. So, but it's, I mean, we credit to Danny Weisbord, they did start, they, didn't, they weren't doing this immediately because it was, there was such urgency in, in 1965 to get out all this extraordinary stuff that was happening, an awful lot of which itself harked back, didn't it? That, that play right at the beginning, yeah, the Herbert Homer. play, was Homer. So, <laughs> You know, you've got people t translating out of Czech a, a text which itself reaches right back to, to Homer. So that's always been woven into it. And then we made it programmatic, if you like. We said, we, you know, we want translations from... And at that point, you're dealing with frontiers of, of space and time in an extraordinary, yeah, extraordinary fashion. Yeah, what comes out of it always is the universality of themes, that it recurs time and time again. This suffering, this dissidence, this fighting against the status quo and the, 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 the whole, right from the beginnings really of, of poetry right up to the present day. This is what keeps coming round. Really. Yeah, and love so, and jealousy and enjoyment of the natural world and babies and growing up and all of it right, right back. I mean, and still and obviously, and that's the, when I said that poetry takes a lot of its force from the context it is, I mean, the context really is it very often it's, it's circumstances actually hostile, I mean sometimes deliberately, malevolently and thoroughly hostile to just being a human being. So when lyric poetry insists on, on the value of ordinary humanity, you know, people being in love, people having children, people bringing up these kids, then it's a polemical act. I mean it's a polemical political act to insist on the value of ordinary human life because if you take Islamic State, they hate it. I mean they actually loathe people. <laughs> The, the fundamental belief of that fundamentalism is a loathing of life. Therefore, any lyric poem that works is not just a gesture, it's actually a fighting back against Yeah, and that. it's quite often that, that we have poems from, that have been written from prison. Yes, I mean, I'm thinking right. about Amajit as well, yeah. 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 Uh, who was in, in prison yeah. for two years. And then there's the Ho Chi Minh, and there's Jack Mapanji. Nazreen Parvas. Yes. And yeah, an awful lot. It's as though once um, normality has been removed from a person, it, it, it's more—it's that much more valuable, and that it kind of produces poetry in in that person. I mean, I think that is so, isn't it? Mm. Yes. The, the cataclysm section is really—I mean, it, it's 
obviously it's not that depressing because actually the poems are incredibly well they're just very to use that really horrible word life affirming because they, they're just very beautifully written and beautiful poet, poetry but the, the, the cataclysms themselves that they refer to are so varied and mm. from mm. Iran to First World War to, to Russia to the Holocaust yeah. and actually there's something that there's, there's more united dufu that there's more actually they have in common that's than, right than, yeah than that's absolutely right. right. It's the universality thing, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. I think that came across very strongly in the poem that you read about the young girl from Pompeii. Yes, it's yeah. beautiful. Yeah. It's going to stay with me for a minute. Yes, it's, yeah. it's a lovely thing. That. That's and that's, right. Yeah. The three different images. Yeah. yeah. And uh, you come through the British Library, and there's a, you know Anne Frank is on the wall. There, a quotation from her diary, precisely really about about the horror coming over her, you know, the, 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 the sort of tornado of horror, really. And this girl in, you know, these things matter, they, they matter deeply in any organisation. MPT is just, is one among thousands and thousands, actually, but any, keep on saying it, keep on saying it, because there are forces that deny that it matters. It's as easy as that, really. It's a, it's a battle of philosophies in lots of ways. Does human life matter? Is it beautiful or isn't it? And I think as editor of MPT now, I mean, would you just like to say how many how many poems you get submitted per week? Oh, I've closed it at the moment. <laughs> it was a bit like it was a tidal wave. But there's an awful lot of, and it's it's all for me, fortunately, not unfortunately, but it is all extremely high quality work, and so it's not, you know, I think, and a lot of poetry magazines probably have quite a sort of slush pile and, and but MPT the work that we get in is, is just remarkable so it's it's a it's a really horrible job trying to separate <laughs> out what you want to publish and what you but, really can't but we publish. should also say this is partly because you have expanded yeah. it to yeah. include email contributions and we we didn't have that when we were, we were perhaps were a bit scared of that <laughs> at the time rightly but, and rightly so <laughs> <laughs> but that has um, sort of spread it out enormously hasn't it and and it's allowed access, you know, to, from, from from poets from all over the world much more easily than it used to be. So it's, it, it is interesting because yeah. we, we also had we did also notice how translation changed. Yes. they've yes. always been brilliant translators of poetry. It's not the case that they weren't there in the first issue or in, yeah. but, but there is certainly a sort of it felt like to us there was a sort of professionalising of poetry translation that was that, that the. The, the world had got slightly smaller in that way and there were so many more people now who were bilingual or have two mm. different dual heritage who mm. could translate with so much more um, assurity really and, and whereas well, certainly the earlier ones there was quite a lot of working with somebody to produce them. Yes, and, and at the same time one of the, re uh, Hughes is, wrote a kind of, uh, in 1983 he looked back on it and it's an extraordinarily acute essay about the 60s. And he says, and Daniel agreed with him, that MPT rode on a wave of not just enthusiasm for, but need for translation. And that round then, if you, if you, you know, it's a good subject, this, if somebody wanted to take it, just what is springing up in the way of translation centres, magazines publishing translations, interest in translation. And MPT is one that rode that wave and has actually stayed there. But one of his... Um, chief characteristics in his view of that period of the early 60s mid 60s is translation is the need for translation and which has grown as Sasha says I mean ever greater because there's ever greater numbers of people doing it and need for it actually but it is interesting that MPT he actually says something there's a phrase something like we were forced into being by the sheer urgent need to have something a magazine expressing this uh, need for translation so. It's not somebody suddenly deciding, well, why don't we have a translation magazine? Sorry, I'm chatting in the back of my head. Oh, I was just wondering, how do you choose your themes, considering that you have to choose them in advance and when it comes out, what's going on, or submission? It's, um, it's quite, well, some of it is. It's a, it really varies. So the refugee one, which, which we're doing next year, is just a very short-term response to something that's happening. First World War one was was more, more obvious. Country themes are often suggested to me by people, or we suddenly get a lot of work in from one particular area, and it seems like a, an obvious thing to do. Um, 
And then there's, there's areas of the world that MPT has been traditionally very poor at representing, so we don't have a great deal of, of, um, of poetry from um, African languages in MPT, and there are very, very few examples. There's Chris Beckett, mm. who um, David and Helen published, and there's um, Charles Cantalupo, another translator from Tigrinya, I think. Yes. yes. Um, but, but really, you know, vast swathes of the globe aren't very well represented by MPT. So I'm going to try and use some focuses to adjust that and to try and get that a bit more, to get some better networks, I suppose, and get some more people who translate from. Uh, from well, they're really quite obvious. I mean, it's far, the Far East is not terribly well represented, mm. although we've had quite a lot of Chinese poetry, I think. Mm. Well, um, the, the Middle East is, is not, not, not as well represented as it could be. Well, well we did have the Palestine issue, and we had, you know, we had a lot of poems around yes, that yeah, point, we, didn't we? We concentrated on that. And in fact, Danny did that as well before, didn't yes. he, in one of his issues? The Iraqi, so Iraqi, the Iraqi issue. issue yeah. It's more like the mix that comes yeah. in all the time is not yeah. sort of yeah. As, yeah. As, as strong. So yeah, they have been. There was an Iranian issue last yeah. year, but, but you know, the, ten, we tend to get a lot of translations from French. Really, don't we? You're German, or um, yes. so trying to sort of leaven that a bit and find mm. ways of, of of making it feel slightly more representative. Mm. Mm. I was wondering if most of the translators you come across at MPT are poets in their own language originally, or if there are people who are just sort of conduits. It's mixed, actually. I mean, I suppose one could say that even if they don't think of themselves as poets and aren't published as such, in order to be able to do it, they must certainly have some poetic gift. I mean, I can think of, you know, off the top of my head, I could think of a few who absolutely wouldn't think of themselves as poets, but whose translations we, we thought poetic. Um, and actually, you can start recognising... Um, their style when they translate. I'm thinking of Robert Hull in yeah, particular. Robert, um, he think, he, yeah, he does publish poetry. Himself, he does publish right poetry, yeah, mm. but it's, um, it, it's quite striking. His translations are very striking, yeah. I think, and yeah. um, Timothy Allen and um, you know, lots yeah. of different people. Who, um, uh, Robin Fulton. Fulton's and, another, yeah. Yeah. Th There's a long tradition, I mean, going right back through into classical time, there's certainly very strong in the Renaissance, that translation was part of your apprenticeship as a poet, and that you went abroad, literally or figuratively, from, from Elizabethan England, they toured France, Spain and Italy, and they learned the, two of the languages, probably, and they came back with these languages, like Wyatt and Surrey, right? So they, they are poet translators, an awful lot of Wyatt's total oeuvre and Surrey's as well, his translation from, from, from Petrarch. Um, Chaucer likewise, actually. Quite a lot, a lot in the 19th century, again. And uh, in German, certainly. I mean, very great 20th century translate, uh, writers like Paul Celan. Um, I can't remember. Um, Rilke's another, but, you know, of the five volumes, say, seven volumes, two or three are volumes of translations from everybody, from you know Emily Dickinson to, 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 to Shakespeare. So I suppose there's less of that now, would you say, in English, anyway? English, yeah. And it's, we are a bit of a monoglot <laughs> culture on the whole, whereas France and the, the continental writers quite often do have another language and, and think of translation as a valuable part of their total poetic preoccupation. A lot of contemporary now poets do do translation and it's some mm. of them publish, some of them just do it for themselves. But it's quite interesting when you talk to poets how many do. Yeah. So, you know, Pascal Petit and um, Bill Herbert and George Sertish of course and you know, if you go through them you go through the names and a lot of them are working on translations. Sean O'Brien Don Patterson an awful lot. Yeah, yeah. yeah Robin Robertson. Robin Robertson. And Paul Paul Bachelor and Francis Leveson yes, that's right. in MPT. I mean, there's just heaps of people who are, wouldn't consider themselves to be translators, I don't suppose, but do translate. Mm. I think if we if we um, we stop now, we'd be such fantastic timekeepers. <laughs> 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 Just in, 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 in celebrating coffee. <laughs> 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 <laughs>